says, get that India, big boy. Hello, 60s. Hey, 40. How are you, mate? Not too bad, champ. Um, how about another instalment of the tip sheet? Sounds like a good idea on this Friday evening, uh, whenever it might be listened to by our uh, loyal listeners. Yeah, so we got the uh, uh, the, the backdrop of uh, the Penrith game, if I'm not mistaken. The Sharks are down 6-0 at the moment, unfortunately. So obviously this game's a bit of implications for the Eels. But more importantly, Parramatta 14 defeat the Melbourne Storm Zero. So let's jump into all the action from round 15. All right. Now, you were out there, mate. Is that right? Yes. I've uh, been out uh, since the return of being able to attend games. I've managed to get to all of the games at Bankwest Stadium. So, yeah, most certainly there. And uh, in full voice, letting the touch judges know <laughs> that I've returned. I had a bit of work to do there as well. Parramatta Eels winning the penalty count. Uh, winning the penalty count, geez. 8-1, eight, eight, if I'm not mistaken. But... Um, bit of a feeling that there could have been some more um, whistleblowing going on. Look, I'll put my biased glasses on and I'll say the Storm were lucky that the penalty count wasn't 16 to 1 because the wrestle, or at least the hold down in the tackle, was back in full force at the hands of the Storm last night. And it was again reflected in a play the ball speed by Parramatta that was. Uh, approaching half a second slower than uh, the Storms play the ball speed. And again, that creeps in uh, with the play the ball speed from uh, all games this year where Parramatta's a little bit slower than their opposition. However, the play the ball speed itself, which was getting close to four seconds, it was uh, 3.91, I believe it was. That sounds right, uh, looking at the uh, NRL here. Yep, 3.91. Yeah, it's... Since round three, there's only been two matches where Parramatta's play the ball speed was slow. One was round three itself against the Broncos, and the other was in the uh, slush. The monsoon. Cogra the other yeah. week, where you can understand that the play the ball speed might have been a little bit slower. It was certainly something that was telling out at the game. It was something that everyone at the ground was conscious of and reminding the referees and the touch judges about. I don't know whether that translated to the television. So <laughs> I definitely, I definitely got the Sevo Chan after each try on TV. But um, speaking of the NRL stats, let's get to the breakdown. Uh, scorer sheet reads as Wanga Blake and Mike Sevo try scorers. Mitchell Moses one from two from the uh, pen- uh, penalty, the try conversions, and two from two from the penalty conversions. Nelson and Sofa Solomon are binned in the fifty-third minute, which we'll get to later, um, which takes the Eels to that fourteen-point to zero lead. Um, possession 51% to 49% in Parramatta's favour. Time of possession 30 minutes and 3 seconds for the Eels to Melbourne's 28-52. Completion rates the Eels just out edged the Storm 76% to 73%. 34 of 45 for the Blue and Gold and 27 to 37 for the Royal Purple. Uh, Eels ahead on runs, run meters, post contact meters, and line breaks. Uh, Storm surprisingly leading tackle breaks which um, kind of makes sense when you think about the the fact that they attacked our right edge a lot and we had a lot of scramble defense bring him down very effectively, which led to the odd broken tackle, you know, I'm sort of surplus, I'd say. Uh, as you mentioned, play the, uh, play the ball speeds favor the Storm. 
Uh, offloads. Uh, Melbourne actually out-offloaded the Eels, 18 to 15. It was a very big point of emphasis on the Fox coverage because there was a lot of offloads, 33 for the game, obviously. Um, so, yeah, one of the rare cases where the Eels get out-offloaded, which sort of makes sense when you think about Melbourne's uh, sort of game plan. They didn't have a lot of their uh, recognised playmakers in there, so they sort of tried to create the difference with the second phase play. Um, the Eels did a very good job staying on top of that, though. Uh, yes, it was, that was something that was very noticeable last night from the Storm was that their second phase play seemed to be an increase on their normal uh, their normal form. Um, I'd have to say that it was something that very early on stretched the Eels' defence, but I think as the game wore on... They adjusted pretty it well. Was, it, it was something that we adjusted quite well to. Yeah, Interestingly, right. given that I think that I was going to bring it up later, Mitchell Moses' kicking game was a little bit off. But the kick diffusion rates actually um, did not look very good for the Storm. Parramatta diffused 92% of the kicks that came their way, whereas Melbourne only got 54% of uh, diffusal rate. So that, that was interesting. Blake Ferguson was very good in the air last night, though. Um, he did make the most yeah. of Mitchell's um, sort of miskicked bombs. I'd, um, have to, I'd have to agree with that. With the majority of Mitch Moses' attacking kicks seem to fall about 10 metres short of where they mm. should be landing ideally. However... With all things being said, and as you said, uh, Blake Ferguson chased well, caught uh, the the ball in that chase. The ball was being turned over about 10 metres out from the Melbourne Storm line, and in reality, that's not a place to be Yeah, exactly. So obviously it is an area of improvement for Mitch as he's trying to refine his rhythm after that calf injury. But uh, turning the ball over 10 metres out is harm, far from a cardinal sin as opposed to, obviously, the 20-meter restarts. Uh, attack, effective tackle rate favored Melbourne Storm slightly. It wasn't a great uh, night for both teams, actually. 86.1% for the Eels, 89.4% for the Storm. Teams are usually aiming for 90-plus percent in that sort of metric. So I suppose um, it was a very fast game. That is worth mentioning that there was a lot of end-to-end stuff and, and the quality of football, for the most part, barring a couple of forced passes from both teams, was fairly good. Uh, Parramatta, 14 errors to Melbourne's 11, which isn't great. We mentioned the penalty count, 8-1 in favour of the Eels. Uh, Ruck and Fringe ended up at even three, three apiece, which is a little bit hilarious, as we mentioned before. Melbourne obviously slowing down in the Ruck a lot. Uh, interchanges, both teams left with an interchange at the end of the game, seven each. Very interesting. But yeah, that's the breakdown. Individual players, mate, um, who jumped out to you before we get to the statistical stuff? We can sort of augment the discussion, I suppose, that way. Nathan Brown was a stand, yeah. absolute standout for me. Yeah, Nathan the, Brown. Only um, and we're saying this. Nathan Brown only sixty nine minutes, which is a, a light workload for him. But even so, he was awesome. Plays of his hair on fire. Managed to get through uh, twenty runs for one hundred eighty five meters, and a whole uh, whole heap of tackles as well to go with that. Thirty five. Uh, yeah, just really leads the way, doesn't he? He. The difference. I, I know that he's not. He's not that much faster than any, or if he isn't even faster than any other forward, but it just, he feels like he plays faster. He just goes to everything at 100%. There, there just isn't a, a half assed hit up with Nathan Brown. No. Everything, is it? Is there such a term as full assed? Nothing's half assed with what he does anyway. Uh, that's a good way of putting it. Um, before we get to the other standout players, I suppose, there is an interesting point I want to bring up. Because there was a criticism floating around online, and I'm going to write about this with my musings that will come out later today. 
But this was a bit of a, a curse game for the Eels because you smash the Melbourne Storm, the media's going to come out and say, well, you know, you're only beating a, you know, a second-string Melbourne Storm, you haven't proven anything. You beat them solidly or, or sort of limp to a victory either way. You're going to get chastised for not being able to put away a wounded Storm. And, you know, God help you if you have lost to them, which actually would have raised legitimate <laughs> criticism, I suppose. But the Eels sort of fell into that win solidly without, you know, punishing them. Uh, but one thing that was I thought was worth, worth mentioning, not Murph mentioning, um, I do what, you know, Steve Murphy does do a good job, but you know, uh, let's get on to the Werfs, not the Murphs. Uh, the Eels didn't really go all out in the second half. There was a lot of um, fumbled balls and push passes, but... Reagan Campbell-Gillard only got 44 minutes. Junior Paul only got 47 minutes. And perhaps most crucially, Reed Munn only got, only got 52 minutes. They gave Ray Stone two relatively lengthy stints at dummy half. So while they certainly took the game seriously, they also took the opportunity to pump some minutes into the guys that aren't their you know, starters and you know aren't their go-to guys when the clutch moments of the game generally happen. I think that's a... A really astute observation that you've made there, mate, because DA was asked after the game about whether he's got any plans to rest key forwards coming into the back end of the competition. And I think it comes down to uh, time management is mm-hmm. obviously what he's looking at, where it's possible to not put as strong a load on some of those key players as what there has been in more recent weeks. And you'd have to say that the fellas that were called in to do the job in, in over longer minutes than uh, normal, like uh, Ray Stone and and uh, Oregon Kafusi and um, uh, Kane Evans, that their contributions were, I suppose, just as uh, valuable as the starting forwards this week. Yeah. And particularly, I, I at least, I was really pleased to see what happened with Ray Stone. Obviously, coming back from that broken hand, he got a few minutes last week. He's been a, a work in progress at dummy half. And the last couple of weeks haven't been very conducive to throwing a, a developing sort of, back, not even backup, but like utility emergency dummy half. How would you classify Stone? Because he's a back rower first. And he's an emergency, in the past, he's been an emergency dummy half. This week, it felt yeah. like it was the first game where he looked like a backup dummy half. Yeah, he's very much. I would have just used the classification as a utility forward. Yeah, in, a utility back in the rower. true sense. Yeah, in the, in the old school sense, right? Yeah, he's because he can he can play middle, he can play back row, and he's adding dummy half to that repertoire. And they spend a lot of time with his working on his passing at training. And he gets a little bit of time in a post session that playing out a dummy half. And what was pleasing about last night was that his time at dummy half wasn't all shoveling the ball out. He had a, a quick couple of moments where he engaged the defence as part of his dummy half work. Now, that may not have been something that was overly noticeable to most supporters, but when you've got a dummy half that... Uh, will take one way and then take off the in the opposite direction. It's a nice little stepping stone in his uh, skill development, I think, as a as a dummy half. And it wasn't it wasn't just the, about the game. It wasn't just the nuanced passes. He was trailing the ball very well, ended up receiving the extra offload or two through the middle. And uh, he almost it, it didn't result in a try, but he had a nice little play that led to Oregon Kavusi poking his nose through the line 
um, where he couldn't find that one extra link man because Stoney had already been involved on his left, which could have been a try late in the second half. So very encouraging signs for Ray, and not to mention that he is still an absolute rock in the middle. He just crunches crunches dudes. There was at one point where, you know, yes, he cuts down lots of guys, but Nelson Sofa Solomon had just wound up and just tearing into line, and Stoney just squared him up and just did not move back. So he um, punches well above his weight category, does Stoney. Now, yeah, and it will quickly become more of a fan favourite as as Paramount supporters get to see a little bit more of what he's capable of. And I say seeing a bit more of what he's capable of because, let's be honest, that most of the time he's really had these uh, little guest stints in first grade and he hasn't had that ability. He hasn't had the opportunity due to injury to get any prolonged uh, period in first grade. It's been, exactly. that, uh, you know, he's getting about two or three games and then there's an injury and it's the sort of injuries that can't be helped. A, a broken hand, you're not going to help that. I remember last year he had that injury where... Milford, uh, sorry. Who the Broncos player was. Yeah, Milford was had, a, sort of took a line off a, a kick chase, I think it was. And it was a, a bit of a cheap shot and it blew out his knee. Yeah, he, I think he drove his knee into the, into the back of... Uh, Stoney's leg and I think it was as you said that the impact of that then blew Stone's knee out and you can see his anger when it happened because he knew that he'd suffered a significant yeah. injury at that yeah, point. When you, so, when you do your knee like that you know straight away and unfortunately Stoney knew last year. But yeah it's been Let's hope he gets a bit of a run now. That That is the thing isn't it just between guys like him and Oregon you really want those young sort of bolters on the bench to settle and, and become a, a real reliable quantity in our run to the finals. Now, uh, yeah. one thing that really jumped out to me watching this game was execution wasn't great in the second half in particular, but gee, the intent and the tack. It was like a complete return to who we are, like that sort of rediscovery of our identity in attack. Uh, the structures weren't perfect, but it was way crisper. Um, attacking with speed, getting downhill, giving our centers and back rolls early ball, looking, you know, give them a chance to post up against their opposites in just straight up one-on-one situations. Um, how did they come across at the ground, mate? Did we did we look better in attack? Very interesting that you've raised that. First of all, it's not not, not going to be any secret now to say that uh, my observations of training were of the Eels preparing for a faster game in both attack and defence. So primarily in defence, and as VA alluded to, they expected a fast game. They expected Melbourne to play, I suppose, their typical systematic fast uh, performance and obviously we decided that we would uh, match fire with fire in that regard. One of the things live was that perhaps it looked like the completion rates were worse than what they actually were. Now I was having a bit of a thought about that and I think that there was probably a number of moments where the it, it was like it was the low percentage play was put on by certain players with yeah, that final I mean, pass. off the top of my head, I think both back rowers were guilty of it. Madison made a great half break, and then I don't know what went through his head, but he pegged the ball at Wonger's knees, and Wonger actually did a good job not playing at it. Mind you, that should have been a penalty during that play because uh, Mitchell Moses was absolutely collared high by uh, the centre. Oh, now I'm having a complete Ollum? brain. Oh, yeah, Justin, Justin Ollum. Ollum. Yeah, he got cartwheeled and 
you know, no penalty, so take that as you will. On the other occasion, late in the second half, Sean Lane ran a nice line and sort of just, I don't know, it wasn't panic, but he went for the, you know, Harlem Globetrotters backhand uh, flick pass around the corner to Michael Jennings and he had no chance to catch it. So, yeah, just a and little... I think it would have been forward. Yeah, I, 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 it was forward out of the hands of mine as well, yeah. I don't I mean, God knows how the referee's going to call it because a forward pass is rarely called these days, but... Uh, it was definitely fought out of the hands for mine, so it was pick your poison for the error there. But I think that I think that what you had with that was that those particular plays stood out, and they seemed to be on the back of a good break or a half break or a strong chance to get downfield and put something on. So there was almost that deflation in at the ground where it's like, oh, you know not another one. Yeah, and and you also had that moment where Michael Jennings showed incredible veteran savvy to not do a double movement and reach out and plant the ball down only for Brandon Smith to show even more, you know, amazing football IQ and desperation to knock the ball out in, in a moment that is just, it was incredible from both players. So, you know, full credit to Brandon Smith and it's a, a damn shame that he broke his jaw. But uh, Parramatta also looked to venture wide um, and aggressive early on deep in their half. We had a big line break that Quinton Guffson at one point in the second half, and there was a couple of times where we caught the storm out for sure by being uh, really, you know, fast and, and crisp and aggressive moving that ball in our red zone. So encouraging signs for sure. Um, I think that Dylan and Mitch still have a bit of work to do there. They uh, can still be a little bit too sideways, or in, in Dylan's case, he gets, I don't want to say gun shy, but he's sort of his first read to run the ball can, you know, not always be the right one. But in saying that, he also laid on that beautiful cutout pass to Michael Jennings that led to that near try. So getting a lot better there. Um, and Brad said as much in his post-match press conference that defense has been the focus very heavily for the last few weeks. So I can sort of, I mean, it is frustrating as a fan. We've spoken about this, that you, you see the, the jankiness of the attack, but you can also appreciate that getting your defense right is far more important in the run to the finals because Parramatta know they've got points in them. They, they can, you know, a couple of weeks of polishing up the attack and they should be able to get everything on track. So being able to, and I know Melbourne obviously uh, second string to a large extent, but, you know, shutting them out for the sixth time in franchise history is nothing to sneeze at, and it helps them regain that defensive crown for the uh, competition. Just And just on that, on uh, Monday it was, uh, sorry, um, on, on the day of the match it actually was, I had a look at a comparison between 2019 and 2020 with regard to how the Eels were travelling after round 14. And for anyone who didn't see uh, my tweet on this, here's a bit of a rundown. After round 14 in 2019, the Eels were 7-7. Seven and seven, seven wins, seven losses. This year, they were 11 wins and three losses. And of course, we can now add another win to that. 12 and three. Thank you. Yes. In 2019, after round 14, they had scored 311 points and conceded 306. Now, that's a differential <laughs> of five points. In 2020, after round 14, they'd scored 298 points and conceded 176 with the differential of 122 points. So the, the important so thing to take from that is that our, our offense has gone backwards 13 points. Well, that, that, didn't even, that doesn't even equate to one point per game. And we've got a defence, which is a massive difference because 
we're conceding an average of just over nine points less per game. Holy dog. Now, that is significant. That That's is, one and a half tries huge. per game. Yeah. So one and a half converted tries per game. Yeah, so so. If, we're, if we're looking at what is the base that Brad Arthur is looking to set in the campaign this year, leave no doubt, he's, he's spoken about it in the press conference, but leave no doubt that the a drive has been towards a massive improvement in defence, and statistically, it's backed up. It is a it is a huge difference. Right now, the Eels have only conceded still 176 points. At this same stage last year, if I'm now going forward to round 15 last year, it was a 22 to 16 victory. Over, over Canberra. The big comeback so victory. They conceded, yeah. a, they conceded another 16 points. So their against was 322. That's 322 points last year as opposed to 176 points this year. That those, is um, an enormous difference. Those sort of um, not, little little um, flashbacks are really interesting to provide clarity and a frame of reference to the season, isn't it? It's uh, very, very interesting because... Like, like I said before, we sit there as fans, and I'll, I've been guilty of it in the way in my blogs and conversations. You know, you say, oh, you know, we're not going very well on attack and grumble, grumble, grumble. But that differential difference is just insane, isn't it? And that is something that the Roosters and the Storm have done so well consistently is to have those sort of metrics in for and against. And that's why we're up there at equal second in the ladder this year. Yeah, and it's been pointed out by numerous people that the sides that are there to challenge for the premiership. And I'm not saying that Parramatta is going to be challenging and winning the premiership. Or they making are any putting sort of themselves in the conversation like for that. it, though. But exactly. You, there will be four or five teams every year who are in that window. So as, as a team, as a club, you need to start setting the ambition that you want to be part of that window as often as possible. Every year if possible. And... If you have a defensive system which is only conceding around 12 points per game, yeah, you're going to be in that <laughs> it's, a, it's giving you the opportunity, isn't it? Now, uh, it speaking is. of those defensive systems, was that the best that our right edge has looked all season in defense? Because Melbourne came at us, they threw a lot at us, and I know it, we, we spoke about it, they're under strength, but uh, Ryan Pappenhusen made a concerted effort to attack our right edge. They uh, got they got on the outside a number of times, but the scramble defense was on point. I think the first contact by Ferguson and Moses and Wunga Blake was really good. And the only thing that really jumped out to me for one moment was there was a, a scrum feed on Melbourne's 10-meter line where Wunga sort of keyed in on the ball carrier drifting across the field and sort of knifed out of the line to get him, allowing the, the Storm to poke their line, uh, poke through the line for about 10 meters. So was that the best that we've looked in defense on the right edge? I'm glad that you used the term best that it's looked. I would certainly say that it's the best that it's looked. And yet again, I, this is something that I've come on, I've talked about in, in previous weeks. There's the criticism, and perhaps rightly so, that our right edge defence is not as good as other aspects of our defensive system. However, we still come back to the fact that the team was averaging around 12 points conceded per game. So there's a hell of a lot that's going right within the defensive structures. And if you are then 
improving the right-hand side to that to the point that it looked last night. And again, we're not we're not taking away anything from the fact that there was a little bit of strike power missing from the Melbourne Storm, but they are a systems team, and they continued to play to their systems last night. However, if we're, as I said, improving our defence to the point where we're not conceding anything over on that right-hand side, my goodness, we'll be a really difficult proposition to get over for uh, any opposition team. Now, Friday, Thursday night, I was about to say Friday night, Thursday night marked the return of Mike Acevo from suspension. Now, the NRL Integrity Unit never really disclosed why he was um, missing in action for the last two weeks, but um, it was a good return to form for Michael, wasn't it? Who was that person masquerading as Michael Sivo uh, in the previous weeks? Uh, Psychomivo. So it's his, um, they, they say it's his cousin, but I'm not really convinced. It, 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 the difference between Michael Sivo last week and this week, I doubt that you could... It, it wasn't It wasn't the same, same player. Seriously. It was not the same player, no. Uh, confident under the high ball, took two really difficult spots under pressure with Melbourne Storm chases in his face, ran the ball out with, um, uh, with a lot of vigour, and as much as the, uh, the the sort of Storm executives and Craig Bellamy like to cry about uh, milking for the crusher, he was really unlucky not to get four or five, six again course. They were absolutely assaulting him on, on his carries, and he was, you know, waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, trying to get up. And there was no... I mean, at one point, the Fox commentary was actually in disbelief that there were... Like, usually they don't comment on the six agains like that. They were actually in disbelief that there was no six again. They're like, that, that's got to be a set restart, hasn't it? Like, they're just... They're lying on him forever. So, yeah, really glad to have him back. Um, he, he ran the ball really hard. Scored... I mean, it was a nice try thanks to Gufferson's beautiful hands. But scored a nice try down that left edge, um, which uh, means that he is... I mean, it's always a qualifying metric, but he is now, I think it's on 20 qualifying games, is now the most efficient scorer at a single venue in the history of the NRL. He's ahead of the likes of um, I think Nathan Blacklock and a couple other really famous scorers. So he's, um, I think it's 22 from 20 at Bankwest, which is um incredible strike rate. Any Anytime that's anywhere near one-to-one when you're you know at 80% or 90% strike rate, it's ridiculous, but he's above 100%. So very, and, very good to have Micah back. And it's, I think it's fair to say that I know I was saying the previous week that I couldn't find a reason to keep him in first grade. He provided me and I'm sure many thousands of other Parramatta supporters with a reminder of just what he offers when he's at his best. But that doesn't buy him time in first grade if he's going to revert back to the Michael was there the previous couple yeah, of Yeah, exactly. You, you can't the be... ball is now in his, well and truly in his court to maintain the standard mm-hmm. that he showed us in Thursday night's game. Because for him to return to less than that it is not going to serve the team well at all. We need a winger who is going to do all the KPIs that a winger is expected to make. Especially so when we're, we're, we are such an edge-dominant attacking structured team. Like Obviously, we've got a very good forward pack through the middle, but where, where we do our bread and butter attacking plays is you know creating space for our wingers to do their magic. And you know, he's been anything but magical the last couple of weeks, and that's why last night was so encouraging. But like you said, you can't have it be a one-off. So 
Speaking of wingers, um, Blake Ferguson continues his scoreless uh, his scoreless streak. He had two opportunities last night. One in the first half where Mitchell Moses tried to lace one of those little Harbour Bridge passes and he wasn't quite on the same page. Now, I think the cover defense probably gets him there. But the second one was rough because it was early on in the attacking set. We go right right at short side. Uh, Guffo tries to do the uh, the fast hands tap on, gets it too far forwards, and Fergo's not there for it, which was probably you know fought out of the hands regardless. But if he got in that one, I think he beats just them all. I'm on the cover defense, so he's um he's working hard. Fergo uh, had a nice little half break after scooping up a drop ball last night and did a, a number of really good defensive reads and tackles. Uh, aside from those um uh, attacking defusals or attacking defusals, attacking takes that we talked about earlier, so he was getting well involved, but. Just the ball is not coming his way. Look, I'm less concerned about that because there's so many other KPIs, and I've used that yeah, term yeah, exactly. a second time, but he's doing the tuck yards from down our own end. He's getting up there for the ball, whether it's in uh, offense or defense, and those opportunities just aren't coming to him. You can say that a winger's job is to finish off those sort of try-scoring movements. There is no try-scoring <laughs> exactly, exactly. Blake Ferguson's way. Yeah, he's, um, he's just getting, I mean, and to his credit, he has not complained. Every time he's come to the meter, he said, you know what, I'm doing my job, we're getting the wins, and obviously barring last week, we've been getting the wins. He said it doesn't make a difference. So he's a, he's been a, a role model in that regard, you know, absolutely professional, and getting through the work and doing all the stuff he, does, he, he can do to get the team on the winning sheet. So, I, I actually, you, you didn't raise that, but I thought it was funny, the interview with Michael Jennings it, on the uh, presser day for the players, and he was asked about the Eels' attack. You know, is, it, is there a reason for it? And he said, well, the ball's not getting in his hands enough. So, And, and, and <laughs> we've spoken about it before, but, you know, the left edge is obviously lethal, one of the best in the competition, and the right edge hasn't got any chumps on the inside either. Ryan Madison yeah. was, you know, dominant against the Melbourne Storm last night. And Wonga Blake looked very good as well when we gave him the early ball. So it, it, it's more a function of having a loaded backline on both sides. And I suppose Mitchell Moses having that calf injury and, and losing his rhythm did not help it as, as well. So as we... Yeah, just, you know, I, I just wanted to touch on uh, the Melbourne Storm uh, in a, a couple of areas. First of all, I want to praise them because they are such a strong system team. And when you've been... Uh, when you've had a coach that's been part of the club for as long as Bellamy has, you've got two things that can happen. Either the voice becomes stale and... Which is very, very relevant. easy to happen. Yes, and it, it, it happens at a lot of clubs. Jack Gibson always operated on that uh, theory that the coach has a, a life of around about that three years at the club before it's time to, to move on. Mm-hmm. Bellamy and Bennett have proven that it is possible to be at a club for an extended period of time and remain relevant, Bellamy especially. And he's established a strong work ethic, a culture that wants excellence in their performances out on the field where players know their role. So I'm going to give them credit for that. And it was on display all night last night in in terms of uh, an absolute desperation in defence. Those points that the Eels got did not come easy. And we spoke about the near chances or the opportunities to score higher, uh, a larger number of tries last night. But they were denied by a Melbourne defence, which just did not give up at all, all night. 
Now, where I do want to bag them is that that defensive style is still has. If it's not, if it's not a wrestle, it's just the straight out holding down in the tackles. We've touched on that. The other thing that I wanted to talk about was the shots that Bellamy wanted to fire about VA, which is which is a bit of um, a man in a glass house throwing a lot of stones because accusations that the Eagles trained to milk penalties is rich coming from the club that has historically introduced every illegal wrestling move in the history of the NRL. But um, do... the, the NRL has had to introduce rules to combat some of the inverted commas innovations <laughs> that Melbourne Storm have introduced over the years. And I don't care what anyone else says or whether it be through uh, commentators who are, you know, fissing in his pocket there are some who are prepared to call it for what it is. There are some that are prepared to piss in his pocket. But the Storm are absolutely renowned for introducing so many styles of tackles that are detrimental to the game. And, and of all the, I mean, and it's that it's that game fury esque thing where, like the New England Patriots in the NFL, you push the line of the rule as far as you can and see how far the, the officials and the, the governing body are willing to tolerate to gain as much of a competitive advantage as you can get. And Melbourne have done it for years and it's been hugely successful for them. They've been such a dominant ruck team on the back of A, being very fit and very disciplined, but B, uh, you know, eking out every extra percentile advantage you can get from those wrestling moves. And it was a bit rich last night hearing Craig Bentley whine about the milking um, in that regard. And obviously, if you've watched the presser, Brad Arthur took... Uh, very, very uh, severe exception to the accusation. And I can't tell, I could, I, someone said it was Brent Reid, I wasn't sure if it was James Hooper, but when they leveled the um the accusation that, you know, the Eels trained to stay down, uh, BA gave them five seconds of daggers and looked like he was ready to get up and throw down. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to hear the Eels hit back at some point during the week through the media. I know that Brad isn't, you know, a big man about having wars of words, but having your integrity question like that is not a, a great place to be at. and But it does lead us to a... Sorry, you going to say? I was just going to say, just on that regard, and people have made comment about this before, but Micah is renowned for staying bit, staying down a bit after a tackle. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about that he's milking anything. What I'm talking about is if Micah cops or not, you'll get a really slow play the ball out of Micah yeah, or he'll absolutely. get some treatment. He's... He's still relatively new to the NRL, and when he cops some of those hard knocks, he'll. It's and it's not always in the Eels' benefit, you know. It's no, I absolutely no. There's been up our momentum. Yeah, plenty of opportunities to get a relatively fast play of the ball that you know, Mike has been shaken up and just does not get it out. That, that's that's it exactly, and you know, so to suggest that he's staying down to try to milk that penalty, as I said, it's it's something that is simply a trade of his where, and you saw that where he was injured towards the end of the of the Manly game in a legitimate tackle. He stayed down. He needed to be helped. Off yeah, the in a situation where we he had the score right twice. We had the score yeah. twice and he just couldn't get the play the ball out. So yeah. um, continuing with that negative theme, um, the judiciary rap sheet came out. And in a night where Nelson Osofa Solomona tried to decapitate Murata Niakore, and then we had, uh, before we mentioned that, uh, Justin Olam had cartwheeled uh, Mitchell Moses late and high off the ball. And there were two Melbourne Storm players, uh, young Cooper Johns and the bench forward, Albert Vette, cited for crushes. 
Um, there's going to be zero Melbourne Storm players missing a game. Meanwhile, Murata Niakoro, who I thought might have been facing a grade one careless charge for the uh, tackle on Brandon Smith, was ruled to have been um, within his rights to tackle like that. Instead, he's facing two weeks under the new crusher rules for the set The set before the Eels got the back-to-back crusher calls. Uh, Eisenhue got tackled and, and was a crusher. And I went back and looked at it and, I mean, I suppose technically it's a crusher, but I don't think there was any pressure on the neck. Like, I, I'm... I'm honestly a little bit miffed about this. So under the new rules, Murata Niakore faces a 200-point charge. So early guilty plea means one week he gets um, out, but he has a million, or million, obviously, uh, in the vicinity of um, uh, 70 or 80 carryover points, which means any incident is potentially a two-week suspension next time. When you sent me a message about this, I think it was around the middle of the day today, mate, I, I saw your message come through and I thought, what? Yeah. Uh, oh, I was in, I, I was incredulous, uh, and I still am, to be honest. And I've had a look at the footage of what Mike has done, and as you said, yeah, technically it looks like it's a crusher. However, when you look at the positioning of his shoulder and the positioning of the head of uh, the uh, Melbourne Storm player uh, Eisenhuth, and you look at it and you go, well, okay, his shoulders sort of underneath the the neck of Eisenhut. So there's a there's a little bit of pressure that's there. But the shoulder his shoulder or body wasn't pushing down on the top of Eisenhut's head, which is often defined the crush attack. Yeah, and, and and what what really gets up my craw is that okay, if you're gonna suspend or charge Murata Niakore, surely you charge the other two Melbourne Storm players. But it feels yes. like the judiciary's gone, oh, you know what, penalty's sufficient, move on. Meanwhile, Murata, who wasn't penalised and was also called out by Craig Bellamy in the post-match press conference, which makes you wonder if that sort of fueled the MRC to add a little bit of scrutiny to the incident, um, gets the two-week suspension or provisionally gets a two-week suspension. So it just... Oh, the consistency has plagued both the judiciary and the MRC for years. The system is completely broken. We've spoken about it before and it just makes my blood boil when it happens. So... Murata looks this at. Could be, it could be a can of worms coming here, mate, with reviews of incidents like that within games because what? there is no doubt that we want to eliminate the sort of tackles that Russell Packer has. Yeah, where you, where you where, forcibly, like, like it's like you're, do, you're doing a DDT or something, like you forcibly get the yeah. neck, wrench it, and drop your body weight onto it. That is what the, the danger of the crush tackle is because you are going to separate one of the, you know, the, the, C, like the C series um, spinal bomb cords. But in this case, you know, and I'll, I'll say this in defense of the Melbourne Storm players that were charged, a lot of attacking players are getting their backs into a position where they're sort of backing into contact and trying to push through. And, in, and I think in both the Melbourne Storm players, I think the first incident was less so of an egregious one as far as the second one with Vete. But you could make that defense the same as you could make that defense for Murata. And instead, here we are with only one player charged and the other two let off. And... I mean, we've argued, we've argued this before, but it it sends a bad precedent for the MRC and the judiciary. But as we know, with us in our in our cases, trying to argue down incidents, there is no precedent. Doesn't mean shit for the MRC and the judiciary. They just wing it. And yeah. you know, we saw with Nathan Brown earlier this year when we hired a, a lawyer that got Billy Slater off on the the ridiculous shoulder charge defense. That Nathan Brown, who like tapped Victor Radley on the chin as he was half like halfway down to the ground, got two weeks 
Meanwhile, Nelson of Surface Solomona gets a grade one careless charge for decapitating Murata near Corey for breaking his nose if Brad Arthur's to be, be believed in the press match, uh, post-match press conference. So I just don't understand. It makes my blood boil. And I, I'm at the point where I know that it's most likely because the judiciary is just and the MIC is just run with ineptitude. But the, the conspiracy theorist in me is saying they're looking at the Melbourne Storm. Kenny Bromwich exited the game with a calf tear. You got uh, obviously Brandon Smith had a broken jaw. They're down a million players already. Are they throwing the Melbourne Storm a bone? Are they saying, you know what, you've got half your squad out. We're not going to charge you this week. And like I said, the realist in me knows that it's just because they're, they're inconsistent and idiots. But the conspiracy theorist in me can't help but look at that and say, there's got to be something cooking there. I smell what you're cooking. <laughs> oh, just... I'll, look, I'll say I'll I'll say nothing because I cannot believe out of that game last night where there was a marked difference between the two sides in their approach to defence in terms of where the target area was and the work that was done on the ground and the team that infringed less is somehow going to end up with the suspension from, and I just can't believe that the Sofa Solomona A player with more prize than pretty much anyone else in the NRL at this point gets off of a grade one careless, which is a $700 fine. Just, ugh, like I said, makes my blood boil. Alright, let's let's not get derailed by um, complaints about the MRC and the judiciary. Uh, Paramaria was one fourteen nil. Who was your best on field, mate? Well, we touched on Nathan Brown before. And uh, who so gets I'm who gets the silver and the bronze? Gutho is up there for the silver, and I would suggest that for the bronze, I'm liking the edges, and I'm yep. thinking probably Ryan Madison just ahead of Sean Lane. I think that's pretty what reasonable. You, yeah, I think that's pretty reasonable. Um, I felt like it's funny because I felt like Junior had a couple of really good runs, and then you look at the stats, and it was 12 runs for 90 meters, so. It was a case of maybe just popping off a little bit more on TV than he actually did in terms of production. So, yeah, I'm thinking the edges. Guffo, once again, I mean, I think him and Nathan Brown are just so perfectly mirrored as forward and back leaders. So that they always feature in the 3 to one pretty much. If they're not getting points, they're thereabouts. So, yeah, definitely Brownie 3, Guffo 2. Um, I mean, I'm almost tempted to throw Stony a point just for you know that big step up. But, yeah, give it to one of the edge boys. We'll go, I'll go with you, Ryan Madison. So, yeah, Parramatta Eels 14, yep. defeat Melbourne Storm 0. Uh, pull even for the Melbourne Storm on competition points with uh, it, uh, 12 wins, which is 24 competition points. Storm still ahead on four and against, which is a little bit unfortunate. But uh, it gives the Eels the chance to vie for, well, I say vie for home field advantage throughout the finals. There is an article now saying that the NRL will be pushing the Eels and the Panthers to move their finals games to A and Z, if that so happens to be, which is ridiculous. But there we are. But yes, if um if the Eels win out at this point, they will potentially finish first, provided that the Penrith Panthers drop one other game, aside from the loss to us, if we're talking about hypotheticals. So second place think, is is still in. I the, think you're gonna lock the Panthers in. So. Yeah, well, given that the they're they're putting the Queens for the Sharks at the moment, which is probably our best chance of them dropping that second game, um, it, it is looking less and less likely. So finishing second would not be terrible though. Um, it gives yeah. you home field advantage to obviously two bites at the cherry. And it means that you would provisionally meet the Panthers in the uh, grand final, I suppose, which is not a terrible matchup for us. Yeah, it would be uh, 
a, a true Western Sydney uh, derby for a grand final. It'd be, it'd be good, for, the, good for the game. Yeah, yeah. And we've had the obviously the derby against the uh, the Bulldogs in the past, and we know how Penrith feel about Parramatta. <laughs> I, you know, I can't say I'm particularly partial to. Myself, it's a it's a healthy rivalry, isn't it? <laughs> well, my my feelings towards them is, is simply I used to I didn't really care, like to be honest. And then I've just then I've just found them to be uh, quite unpleasant in my yeah, in my that, that's, that's how I think and, a lot of Parramatta fans have um sort of built the rivalry, haven't it? It's like I know that obviously they've won the premiership more recently, but they've always been the little brother in the West. And then for a degree of you know obnoxious uh, interactions, I suppose, and then. The media pandering—they've all of a sudden the, the rivalry has been reignited. Well, it's it's almost like um, I, I hate you for hating us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's how I, that's how I feel. Uh, uh, mate, this week you wanted to touch on a topic of unwritten rules. Yeah, so I follow a lot of sports. I'm a bit of a, a sort of a. Oh, probably group is not the right way of putting it, but I, I do enjoy filling up my week with uh, a variety of sports outside of rugby league, which is my number one passion. But um, I love my Seattle Seahawks in the NFL. And by virtue of adopting the Seahawks in the NFL years and years ago, I inherited uh, the other team in the city, the Seattle Mariners, who are absolutely dreadful. Um, so I've been following, watching a lot of baseball and the Mariners in the middle of a rebuild. And so I've been following them and it's been Fun in a way watching young prospects, but along the way I was watching some other games on, on the highlight reel and the San Diego Padres played the Texas Rangers, who are the Rangers are in the same division as the Mariners, so they're like, you know, manly of the dogs of the Eels, right? A, a close rival. So I was watching that game and a really weird spot came up in this game. The Padres were up nine to two, so up seven runs, um, late in the game, and their best player was at the plate. And in baseball, there's strikes and there's balls. And he was on a, a free and no count, which is free balls, no strikes, which means that he can't get out unless he gets the third strike or then, you know, gets caught or hit out. So he had the sort of like the green light to go and hit because he was their best player. Um, free and no on the plate. The bases were loaded, which means there's a runner on, on first, second, and third. So they're in an optimal scoring position. And um, you know, they're up a lot of runs. And uh, Fernando Tatis Jr., who has these awesome predator dreads he's this cool looking player leads the league in home runs leads, leads the league in steals he's absolutely killing it lights up this ball and hits a grand slam and you know he's celebrating and and loves it and post game there's all this big drama because one of the unwritten rules about baseball is that if you explicitly if you're up by six or seven runs and you're on a three and oh count you don't swing at the first pitch that comes after that where the pitch will go right over the middle of the plate to get the strike you give them a free pitch. Like, absurd, right? You're, like, you're trying to win a game. You, you don't give people free pitches. So there, there was this whole furor after where um, the opposition coach had a tantrum, or manager rather. Um, coaches and managers are different things and uh, different terminology used in baseball. Uh, and and then even his own manager chewed him out because bizarrely, and his manager obviously, uh, people would notice, but he had ties to the, the team they were playing. He came from that system and ended up being a manager for the Padres. And... The, the outrage from the, the people involved there was ridiculous and obviously it was decried and called out as stupid by a lot of fans and, and other players on Twitter and social media. But it led me to this uh, thought. Um, what unwritten rules are there in rugby league? Is, do we, is there a similar situation that could happen where someone does something incredible 
but it's looked down on by the old guard or by you know the the purists because they broke an unwritten rule. Well, can I? First of all, I'm just wondering: does that is there a parallel with that? Where um, are we talking about this as almost like a sports uh, a sportsmanship issue, where? Uh, you don't take advantage of a, a particular situation. That, that's that's uh, how where... that's how it was spun out by in in, ter- in defense of the unwritten rules. But the thing with baseball is is that there isn't a, a time limit. So if you're down by seven runs, that doesn't mean anything. Even if it's the last innings, as long as you're good enough to get on base and keep hitting, you just you just keep going for your batting lineup. You can bat for fif- cool. you can bat for fifty runs. That's the absurdity of the situation. And oh, the only parallel I could say is. Um, so is that to say, like, if a, a team is up by 24 points in a game of rugby league and they've got an overlap of five on two uh, for the chance of scoring? Yeah, a try, exactly. And you got to you got to you got to pull up and, and slow down to a trot, let the cover defense get across, and have a chance of making the save. Like, because yeah, um, the, the, I, do, I, I have seen in soccer where there's a player who's. Uh, down injured or something that 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 was exactly what I was going to say. All over the side yeah, line. in in the you same know, vein so for rugby league, I was going to say if a player goes down running the ball injured, you you don't you don't light him up. You put your hand on him and then you know make the tackle with downward uh, downward pressure there. That's an unwritten rule because you're within your rights to absolutely light up a player that's on the ground like that, but you don't do it because obviously it's a you know in in bird culture a dick move. But yeah, and I did I had said to me. Uh, by uh, one of our uh, colleagues, I, I believe it was uh, Trouser, who said uh, Trouser Hill, who said to me the other night about in attack, is there something stopping teams this year from sending their attack towards the defence where there is an injured player in the line, because he observed that there seemed to be a bit of a reluctance and I was trying to think there was I'm sure there was a game earlier this year where there was someone in the defensive line that was injured and the old supporters were basically screaming yeah bang bang for yeah uh it was a manly game Moses Sully the one we lost yep and we eventually did run it and we scored a try uh yeah so just a fascinating because, yeah, baseball is a, a very storied game and it, it's truly unique. I suppose the, the nearest comparison is test cricket in sort of the, the one-on-one aspect between the pitcher and the batter or the bowler and the batter. Um, and, yeah, at least, I mean, test cricket does have a lot of traditions as well, so that's probably where the best comparison would be for this unwritten rules. But um, in, a, in a fitting twist of karmic fate, uh, the San Diego Padres hit that Grand Slam on that night and they played a four-game series against the Texas Rangers. And a Grand Slam is a very rare occurrence, 60s. Can you guess what happened in each of the next three games? Uh, better fill me in. First of all, what's the grand slam? When the, the batter hits a home run with a runner on each of the plates, they score four runs. Right. So okay. the, they, they, hit a, yep, yep. they hit a grand slam with Fernando Tatis Jr. on the first game, which caused all the outrage. They played a yep. four-game series, so three more games after. Do you, yep. do you fathom to have a little flutter on what happens um, in each of those games? Uh, I would... No, you fill me in. Fill me in exactly what's happening. The San Diego Padres made baseball history by scoring four consecutive Grand Slams from each of those games. <laughs> so they, they went Grand Slam, Grand Slam, Grand Slam, Grand Slam. Um, like I said, in a fitting twist of karmic retribution for crying about a stupid unwritten rule. And the even more amazing part is that the man that started it all, Fernando Tatis Jr., he hit the Grand Slam in the first game. 
And then he completed what's cool in in, bas- in baseball in one game. If you hit a grand, uh, a, a, sorry, hit a grand slam, hit a home run, a single, a double, and a triple, it's called completing the cycle because you do each of the available scoring shots you can do. Fernando Tatis Jr. completed the grand slam cycle. He hit the grand slam cycle in the first game. Then in the second, the third, and the fourth, he was on first, second, and third as each other player in the t- three other players in the team hit the grand slam. So the play that started it all was part of every single Grand Slam in a unique spot on the bases. Absolutely incredible stuff. It's the sort of like what would the odds? Yeah, the odds you could get. Yeah, and as I say in the um in the game, you can't help but fall in love with the sport for those sort of things. What an insane, like statistical aberration to set history of four consecutive Grand Slams and then have the player be a part of each of the four parts that you could be part of in a Grand Slam. But yeah, so apart from. Apart from where you were talking about the uh, where there's a player that goes down injured, have you come up with anything else in rugby league where there's an unwritten rule? Or, or maybe this could be something that one of our listeners might come up with or, or offer an I, I suppose this is an unwritten rule. I suppose it's, it's not really an unwritten rule, but the way some teams train, you're not meant to push in scrums. And Parramatta have taken advantage of that. They've had great success. Yep. Um, uh, what, I mean, what else off the top of my head? I mean, the quick tap is, the you know... Uh, you, it's not an unwritten rule. You want to take advantage of it. Um, I mean, the twenty forty might as well be an unwritten rule because no one does it. <laughs> but that was a stupid rule to introduce in the first place. But yeah, um, if anyone's got a, a great idea or a great reference for an unwritten rule in rugby league, just drop one in the comments for the the podcast. I'd really maybe we can follow up on this because this is an interesting little um thought. And like I said, it's more of a baseball thing because of the unique aspect of the game. If it's you know, it, it is a very rigid in some ways, but it opens up a lot of gentlemanly uh, unwritten stuff, whereas league is more of a gladiatorial, you know, blood sport where, you know, you're just trying to smash each other so everything's up for grabs. But, yeah, it'd be interesting to hear from this. Now, um, just getting back to uh, Parramatta. Yes, sir. Last week, we t- last week we touched on critics, and that was obvious because we just had a loss against St. George, so... We were going to have the critics that came out of the woodwork. There's been media types who have been critical of our win over the storm. To be honest, I don't give a shit about media critics. They can say <laughs> they honestly can say whatever they like, and it it means nothing to me. I mean, they're there to sell However, papers and get clicks, mate. Yeah. However, when you have people in your own supporter base and probably I shouldn't say the word critics let me use the word death riders I don't see anyone who death rides their own team as being a supporter in any way shape or form and I'm not going to give particular individuals or websites or anything like that any oxygen on the basis of uh, you know talking naming them specifically However, I cannot believe that there are supporters out there who, after a win, seem to be unhappy. And let, let's say, let's, let's be straight up. Yeah, it would, have been, it would have been good to have put on more points against the Storm. But the manner of the win was still something that the Eels should be happy about. Absolutely. Supporters should be happy about. Getting the two points they should be happy about. If you are moaning and groaning and bitching and carry, whether you're carrying on about the coach, the players, or whatever, in a 12-3 season, 
Hey, piss off and support another club. In all seriousness. <laughs> there's, like, there's, I, a, I, there's a lot of shit in rebuilding clubs that you can go support. You can get stuck in oh. the, the purgatory of ninth for the West Tigers. Or you could jump on the bandwagon of the Roosters of the Melbourne Storm if, if winning comfortably and having great success historically is that important to you. Go jump on the bandwagon. Absolutely. And that's probably about as much air as we as we probably should give. <laughs> uh, you know, inverted commas. It, it, is, it is a, a sticking point, though, because like you said, 12 and 3, yes, we've had our trials and tribulations in recent weeks, but we just shut out the Melbourne Storm. I mean, yes, it's a, a B team for the Melbourne Storm, but, you know, we shut them out. Sixth time in their well, franchise history. And that B team from the Melbourne Storm... Still has plenty and, of origin and international caliber yeah, players they, in it. Yeah, so they, I think there was about half a dozen in that category last night, either origin or international. Which actually out, then, outnumbers the Eels. Yes. And on top of that, you've also got a team which were down a couple of players on their team the previous week that had taken the Roosters yeah, apart. Yeah, exactly. So they're not, not exactly travelling poorly. No, they are they are a system team. They have done it historically over the years mm-hmm. during origin periods and where that's... they have lost more players during an origin period than their injury crisis right now. It's a This is an injury crisis where they'll be without players for an extended period of time or or in fact in the case of Cameron Smith they've been without him for a few weeks now mm. so they've perhaps got a little bit more of a challenge however the players have historically lifted in Melbourne Storm teams as I said because they're a system yeah. team and every, and every player knows their role and everyone has a high expectation of themselves and of the others that are in their team and that's why you saw them compete, compete, compete and fight to stop Parramatta from scoring at every opportunity that they had last night. Exactly. Another team another team with so many players out would have just rolled over. Absolutely. And that's why every year that, you know, the pundits have tipped the downfall of the storm is a year they've got it wrong. Because like you said, the systems are in place to make them competitive week in, week out. Yes. All right. So uh it, I mean, let's like move, like I said, it, <laughs> it, it is easy to get swept up in, in all the that those sort of negative responses, but End of the day, Parramatta 12 and 3 on the season. And not just that, they're healthy. They're building towards the finals. They've got, you know, five games to get everything right. Defense is top of the competition, best scoring defense. And now they can get the offense quicking. So, good good place to be. And I tell you what, I'd rather that than 7 7 with a, a performing against the five, mate. <laughs> so, <laughs> absolutely. Now, 60s, mate. I'm really excited about our exclusive this week. When footage of dancing in the Eels dressing room emerged on Thursday night, I did a little bit of research, and I'm pleased to say that I found the man behind it. The Eels have truly set a new benchmark in this addition to their staff, and the man himself has chosen TCT for his first exclusive interview. So it's a huge welcome to Parramatta's official dance coach, Ulian Chazez. Thank you. I'm proud to be part of the Eels 2020 campaign. Um, did I hear that correctly? Official dance coach. You in the bubble, Julian? Yes. It's all official, and I've been in the bubble since round three. To be honest, I'm certain that I'll be the first of similar appointments throughout the NRL. Innovation is always copied. So can you talk us through how this has come about? Oh, certainly. Um, back in, let me see, uh, last year, March was the Mardi Gras. Uh, it must have been, uh, say, November. I fielded a call uh, from the Eels CEO, Jim Sarantinos. 
uh, there was some concern in the club that the expressive movement of the squad was limited to a simplistic pelvic gyration, apparently referred to as the Gutherino. Actually, I'm a fan of the Gutherino. I've been trying to incorporate that into my old man dance. Um, oh, look, sorry, please continue, Julian. Well, as you can imagine, the club its sponsors and even the coaching staff were concerned that success on the field could be quickly derailed by a team devoid of spontaneous and aesthetically pleasing movements of joy. Enter moi. Now, do you think that NRL clubs have historically ignored the importance of a dance? Well, truthfully, uh, I have to commend the Parramatta Club for being so innovative. There's a certain club employee who has also been pivotal. Uh, I know that he wants his contributions to remain anonymous, but he has a dance move which he calls the golfer. Um, you may have noticed Mitch Moses' pre-kicking, pre-kicking routine. Uh, it's all in the hips, baby. So, can you talk us through your progress and the players that you should, uh, or we rather, should keep an eye on? Well, firstly, I have to praise the Eels Board for incorporating a dance studio into the new Kellyville headquarters. It's never easy to control a group of footballers, or excuse me, footballers, in a mirrored room. I think most people would understand the challenges there. True that. After getting their focus right, the first step was the introduction of some basic rhythm. Young Dylan Brown was the first to embrace my methods, and the club encouraged his public displays of beatboxing and freestyle interpretive. So that that was you? Oh, absolutely. And I'm over the moon that my Fijian stars, Kane Evans, Mike Sivo, and Wonga Blake, are leading the way in the sheds after the game. The club arranged for leaked footage of their execution of my fusion and ecstatic routines. Any emerging talent outside of those boys? Oh, keep an eye on Oregon Kafusi. Kane has taken him under his wings, and the two of them have premiered their own choreog- choreography entitled Chain Me Up, Baby, on Thursday night. I gushed like a proud parent watching that one. And uh, what about Gutho? The captain needs to lift his game. It's not easy removing the frog march or the pelvic thrusts from his repertoire, though. That's tough criticism, mate. Any any issues apart from Gutho? Rhythmic body coordination doesn't come easily to everyone. I have an assistant who teaches interpretive handshakes. You might see some of his tutoring on display in the rundown to the finals. Thanks, Julian. Really appreciate your insights today. Uh, we might check in for you again in the coming weeks. Oh, my pleasure. And remember... Alrighty then, moving on. Uh, round 16 is now in our eye line. Uh, Parramatta Eagles will be taking on the South Sydney Rabbitohs. Uh, expect the lineup, mate? Well, the main take is obviously the... Uh, omission now, the forced omission of Murata Nukore. Because obviously the Eels could contest the charge, but it's the, in the first week of a crackdown against the crusher tackle, which means you've got a, a B's appendage, I think, <laughs> of a chance. Yeah. That's, that's how big your margin I'm, of error is. I'm going to take it as I'm going to take it as granted that the uh, there'll be a he'll be out of action for a week. So mm-hmm. what we have to look at there is. Who does VA look to to bring in? Now, Murata plays as a middle off the bench as opposed to when he was filling in for Ryan Madison and playing on the edge. So does VA go for another middle? Does he elevate, uh, say, Oregon Kafusi 
and give him increased uh, minutes to play uh, as uh, Murata's role uh, with those longer minutes coming off the bench mm-hmm. uh, and therefore pick an edge player like Andrew Davey? Or does he bring in another middle player, perhaps Stefano Otokamanu, to uh, cover the missing middle player off the bench? What's yeah. your thoughts on that? The backstory that also follows this is that uh, the New Zealand Warriors announced today that both George Jennings and Daniel Alvaro will be returning to the Eels following the conclusion of round 15. So that gives us access to those two players. I mean, I'm not sure if Brad Arthur's going to put a, a back on the bench for the emergency. But the, I mean, my gut feeling says Andrew Davey gets the call as a re- more so as a reward for his good form, if anything else. The, the name that you didn't mention that could be an intriguing middle forward to put on the bench is the young man that was just upgraded to the top 30, uh, Samuel Hughes. It is uh, an intriguing option because it's it's the long shot option, but you know Stefano was getting very limited minutes, and you're you're allocating the sort of the resources to a player that will be here in 2021. So it, it, yeah. you know, like I said, Andrew Davey is the the good money option, but in saying that, Brad Arthur has been uh, far more aggressive in handing out debuts and and sort of putting young players in positions to fail and succeed. But, you know, have a chance to get a taste of first grade this year. We saw with Jai Field that he was, you know, thrown right into the fire to replace Mitchell Moses. Um, Dylan Brown, obviously, last year was given, you know, the handles to help run the show from a very early point. So, yeah, Sam Hughes could be the outside option here. Well, the take from that is that we would know that if he did decide to debut someone like Sam Hughes, that Sam would get something like five or six minutes. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I'm not expecting anything uh, significant in terms of minutes. But uh, So, yeah, but I make that point because that, again, increases the number of minutes that you would expect then from potentially the other bench players or uh, then perhaps uh, the counter to that is the big minutes anyway for the starting props, which was against what happened in this past week. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's, it is a, an intriguing thought as to whether he would consider naming someone like Sam Hughes on the bench for that little bit of exposure and experience. Uh, I'm, I'm going to suggest that he will go with Andrew Davey. That, that's what my gut and, says. And because and even, even Ray Stone can play in the middle. That's right. In a Nathan, in a Nathan Brown type role. Exactly. So, I mean, yeah, and the other one I wanted to say hypothetically, and I just laughed off the proposition of that, you know, experimental outside back on the bench. But if you're looking to get Hayes Dunster eased in the first grade, um, if you're backing your other three forwards to cover up your sort of opportunities in the middle, carrying him in the, you know, that extra bench role and then giving either Fergo or Wunger a spell, Wunger, Fergo and Micah a spell at the end of, you know, the back end of the game, last 20 minutes, might be an opportunity this week. But in saying that, South Sydney, you know, top eight team, um, you can't take the game lightly. So odds are Andrew Davey gets the nod. Yeah. And I think when it was put to VA about, is it likely that he's going to give any of his uh, players a rest in the last few weeks? I just have the mo- I just have the feeling that the moment he declares this is a rest game for player X and player Y, it sends a message that... VA has an expectation that this is going to be an easier game. And I'm not suggesting that all the players would necessarily think that, but I'd much rather that every game is treated as 
a must win in every respect, which is don't rest a player if the player doesn't, if a player's not carrying any injuries. Yeah, and obviously the Eels also looking to still still build tempo and consistency, so that also would fly in the face of, you know, the idea of resting a player, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So let's go with uh, no, no one rested and uh, the player being called in, as, as I'm suggesting, is likely to be Andrew Davey this week and that it that fits in with the recent use of players. Uh, he's, he's one of the more recently used players. He did a good job when he was in there. He's not coming in as a as well. I suppose Andrew Davy could even play a middle role. He's big enough. When all said and yeah, done, in a, lim- in a yeah. limited capacity, you just get in there and get stuck in, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, that'll be interesting yeah. to see. Uh, and but apart from that, we've got another Thursday night game. Yeah, Thursday but night Bank this, West. In this instance, it's a seven day turnaround. Thank so <laughs> we'll take those. <laughs> so there, there's no short preparation. Uh, it's Perhaps it'll be something that even starts on Sunday for the Eels. So, um, yeah, bring it on. I'll That's be it. there again, mate. So, um, well, I'm hoping to be there. Yeah, <laughs> Knock with on a, wood. With a ticket allocation. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so uh, I'm looking forward to it. So let's put the bow on another episode of the tip sheet. It was a rather long one. We had, what, my tirade about the match review committee and the judiciary. We had um, your little spot on the um, the sort of the outside noise with fans, and then I managed to get us distracted about baseball for a good ten minutes. So um, thanks for sticking by if you're listening. And like like we said earlier, if you can think of any good unwritten rules in rugby league or in any sport, I suppose, well, name it. Just hit us some great unwritten rules in the comments, and um, we'll see if we can elaborate with this in the future. Yes, mate. Uh, it would be great to hear from our listeners in that regard. But uh, in in looking at uh, wrapping up the the program. Let's just say, isn't it great to get a win with the weekend ahead? 12 and free, baby. It makes those weekends so good. Uh, thanks for stopping <laughs> by. Thanks for listening. Keep safe, everyone.